Hello and welcome to Movies Last Night's The Directors series, where we cover four movies each from 12 different directors. Spanning multiple decades, languages, genres and themes, please join us as we revisit classics and beloved movies alongside lesser known and equally interesting films from who we consider to be some of the most influential and creative voices of cinema, past and present. Now, cue the music. episode in our Paul Thomas Anderson series, we will be covering Hard Eight from 1996. It is an American crime film, both written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, in his feature directorial debut. The film stars Philip Baker Hall, John C. Riley, Gwyneth Paltrow and Samuel L. Jackson. The expansion of his short film Cigarettes and Coffee and originally titled Sydney, the film follows the story of a professional gambler and his mentorship of a down and out young man who needs a helping hand. The movie has a runtime of 1 hour and 42 minutes and was distributed by the Samuel Goldwyn Company. It had a domestic opening of $69,000 and went on to take $222,000 in its original release run. The movie has a critic score of 82% on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score of 83%, marking it certified fresh. Although it should be said here at Movies Last Night, we do not use metrics like this to qualify a movie as a success, any more than we do the movie's box office performance. As a friendly reminder, the following show contains spoilers throughout, so you have been warned. What's up with this director series? What are we doing? Well, we wanted to find a way to kind of explore some older movies or movies that maybe we had blind spots in. So what we did is we sat down and we both compiled a list of directors, four films from each, and how we're kind of interested in talking about those films, talking about maybe what they meant to us, something along those lines. So it gave us a way to not just talk about what's happening this weekend or what what's the movie this weekend, because I don't think either one of us really want to talk about, I don't know, the Taylor Swift movie. So <laughs> it's not in our wheelhouse. Instead, we decided to focus in on some directors that sound interesting to us, some we've seen, some we haven't, and spend an extended amount of time looking at their films and kind of breaking them down and seeing if we notice anything kind of in a different way or like with a, with a, with a different perspective as time has passed and really kind of break down you know what we think about them. If you think about it, since day one with the podcast, I would say from like the second or third episode in, and we're well into 100 episodes now, we were doing a run where we were very much like new movie, new episode, new movie, new episode. So anything that was at the box office. And so we were trying to stay up with it, but not only does that kind of become exhausting, I also feel like it's a conversation that so many other people are having that I feel over time, just speaking for myself, that I became less and less interested in, I want to see the movies, but I'm less and less interested in immediately talking about them. I rather like let a movie sit with me for a while and then maybe talk about them. Or conversely, I feel like we always go back to every time we're talking about a new movie, we're always going back and referencing older movies or movies that we grew up with or movies for like that we'd seen previously. So I feel like there's a link in there where we were like, well, why don't we just 
explore those movies, explore the directors that we love, but also not from an angle of, in terms of like, we're not a filmmaking podcast. We're a podcast that's about, by people who love movies, who want to talk about movies. And whilst we are going to be covering these directors, we're not really going to get into the nitty gritty and be like, this guy went to school here and this is his particular, oh, like this is his signature style. Like we will mention that as it comes up, but we're not really going to be talking about the director so much as a run of movies by a director, but not film students. And we definitely aren't filmmakers. So, (laughs) but we are fans and we are like people like enjoy good stories, enjoy good storytelling. With that being said, Eric, who did you choose? My first guy was Paul Thomas Anderson. And the films are Heart Eight, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, and There Will Be Blood. And some people, and I think, I think you had brought it up, Scott. Was that's it's weird that you picked those at least those three three out of those four because I would have went another way with it, and I would have. Now that I'm thinking, I I think I would have too. But it's it's. There is a reason why I did pick these four. You know, I would love to talk about the master. I would love to talk about, you know, licorice pizza. I think we already did actually talk about licorice pizza. Yeah, licorice, we did. Yeah. Licorice pizza. <laughs> but there's a reason that I kind of didn't choose or the Phantom Thread. Did we talk about Phantom Thread? No, I wish. Everything that he's kind of touched has been kind of a masterpiece. But for me, these four movies kind of encapsulated a theme that he's trying to get across and that is one he's always kind of exploring a family like a surrogate family or a father-son relationship or very much heavily involved in the relationships to people so that's kind of the interwoven through line and narrative for these four films and then although i mean you you could say that the master kind of falls in there but but with these it's I think you're able to kind of see the story through everybody's eyes because most of them have this great ensemble throughout the films, especially Magnolia. So with that in mind, these four films are more focused on this idea that he's trying to get across with family, surrogate family, and the themes of the relationship between these characters. People have fallen into different camps with PTA. I think there's the people who you're either going to go late period, you're going to go second half or first half, I think, with them. Usually the people I meet who talk about PTA and we talk about your Phantom Threads, so on and so forth, the second camp people really don't bring up Boogie Nights. They definitely don't bring up Part 8. And Magnolia doesn't really come up in conversation much. Then you have the flip and then you'll have people on the other side. I am curious though, in the run of releases, so Hard 8, 96, Boogie Nights, 97, a year later, Boogie Nights. We'll we'll talk about that because when we start talking about Hard 8, that is, that's quite a jump. Yeah. <laughs> and then from 97 to 99 with Magnolia, and then uh, Punch Drunk Love, 2002, then There Will Be Blood, 2007, you bypass Punch Drunk Love in that chronological order. I'm curious, is there a reason for that? Because I feel like me, for me personally, Punch Drunk Love feels like late period PTA. I was thinking in terms of the relationships that are going on in these movies. You have Hard Eight, which is the relationship between Philip Hall, Baker Hall, John C. Riley, Boogie Nights is obviously Burt Reynolds, Mark Wahlberg, uh, Magnolia. Magnolia, I would throw in there Tom Cruise and Jason Robards, and then. There'll be blood. You have the Paul Dano and Daniel Day Lewis kind of relationship with Punch Drunk Love. 
there's not really a love love story focus with the um it might be kind of in there in some of them magnolia boogie nights maybe a little bit woven in there but with punch drunk it's it's about these two characters against kind of all odds trying to find love trying to find where they fit in their idea of a relationship with love so that to me kind of is on a side that these are these four movies that I did pick didn't fall into. All of that is kind of missing in Punch Drunk. Punch Drunk is it's its own beast in a way, and it does feel closer in tonally to his later work. I feel perfect explains that because there are going to be some people listening to this are going to be like, well, well, well why did he skip Punch Drunk? So yeah. I thought we might get get it out, get out of the way right now. I'd love to talk about Punch Drunk, but it's just I was thinking as far as like the themes of of these four that I pick out of everything that he had, these kind of fit together for me. Let's talk a little bit about the cast for this movie. Really kind of has a small cast. In fact, it has a tiny cast of actual speaking characters. So we have Philip Baker Hall, who plays a character called Sidney. We have John C. Riley, who plays a character called John. Gwyneth Paltrow as a character called Clementine. And Samuel L. Jackson as a character called Jimmy. That's your cast, correct? And it's it's a heavy hitter cast too for that time. I think uh, John, maybe John C. Riley was just kind of on the come up at that point point i i can't really i'm sure he was in comedies before this but i can't really just picture him right now in anything earlier than this it was probably most people's introduction to john c Riley. you think so 100 yeah i think it was probably most people well no i think boogie nights is probably most people's introduction to john c Riley. let's start with philip baker hall because i think philip baker hall if you're especially if you're a younger listener and even honestly probably like myself he's going to be the person where you're like, I recognize that guy, but I don't know who he is. Where's he from? Philip Baker Hall has had a huge career spanning back from 1970. He's from everything, basically. Yeah. I'm going to read out some movies that Philip Baker Hall uh, has appeared in, usually as a character actor, usually as a side actor, a supporting actor. He's never really a star in these movies. 1978, Coma, that's the Michael Douglas thriller, which is superb. Midnight Run with Robert De Niro, classic. Say Anything. He's in the Cameron Crowe movie, Say Everything, Say Anything. Ghostbusters 2, Cigarettes and Coffee, which is a short movie by Paul Thomas Anderson, in which he plays the character Sydney, which we'll come back to because Sydney, as written in Hard 8, is a continuation of that character. And then moving on after that, we have Kiss of Death. He's in in 1995 with Nicolas Cage and John David Caruso, which is a fabulous movie if anybody hasn't seen it. Moving down The Rock. This is why he was in most of his big movies starting in like the mid 90s. So we have that run from The Rock down to Air Force One, Boogie Nights, The Truman Show. He's in the movie Rush Hour with Jackie Chan, Enemy of the State, The Psycho Remake, Cradle Will Rock, The Insider, Magnolia in 1999, Talented Mr. Ripley, Rules of Engagement, Rush Hour 2, Some of All Fears, Bruce Almighty, the Matador, which is a very good movie with Pierce Brosnan. If anybody hasn't seen that, it's a great movie. The Greg Kinnear. Have you seen that movie, Eric? I don't think I have. A really good, like black comedy crime thriller. I think you'd love it. Then we go down to the Amadeville Horror remake on Zodiac in 2007, Rush Hour 3. So he's, he stuck with the Rush Hour movies right the way through. So we suck in in like 2010 onwards. He's not really in much of anything of note. He's in Argo, the um, Ben Affleck directed movie. And then running down. 2018 was his last film performance. You know where I know him from? Curb Your Enthusiasm. I don't remember him in Curb Your Enthusiasm. He is Larry David's, I think it's his dentist or his doctor. 
but he has a very contemptuous relationship with Larry David and it's really funny and he's really good in it. So that's kind of like why I'm most familiar with him. Some people would recognize him from Seinfeld because he's a library yes, cop. Seinfeld. <laughs> he's been in so much TV too. So much TV. Let me double check. I hope we're not talking about him. He's dead. Yeah, he just passed away last year. Yeah, 2022, June 12, 2022. So rest in peace, Philip Baker Hall. You know what I think about when I think about Philip Baker Hall? He's one of these people, I think he's looked the same age his entire life. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? It's almost impossible to tell how old he is because you're like, have you always looked this old? (laughs) Now for me, personally, in a way, his role in this reminds me a bit of uh, Robert Forrester's role in in Jackie Brown. Well, you take somebody who's been around for, for a long time who's an older gentleman and you kind of cast him in the lead and kills it, kills it, just murders the movie. He plays this very low key, very subtly, not a lot of, you know, like a lot of energy, you know, like a lot of bravado. There's a, maybe one or two scenes where he gets a little bit emotional, but for the most part, yeah, he's, he's very steady in it. Yeah. Very controlled. I would say his performances in this movie, very controlled. So let's talk about John C. Riley then. Okay, so going back from 1988 for John C. Riley, Casualties of War, 1989, first movie of note, really, in my opinion. Uh, Days of Thunder, State of Grace. He is in Watson and Gilbert Grape, The River Wild. He's kind of a journeyman actor. I, that Very I much so. That I didn't realize, you know, I thought he was just kind of a comedy guy, but to be honest, he has he has a kind of a nice little palette of, of films here. I feel though, like we're mentioning him in, we mentioned earlier, we're like, well, I think that perhaps Boogie Nights is when he became on everybody's radar. Radar. Nowadays, you don't think of him in those movies. You think of him in Boogie Nights onwards, really. And you definitely think of him as a comedic actor. And I think if you were to go back and watch this movie now, Hard Eight, and you were to watch it for the first time, you watch it in 2023, it's difficult to remove John C. Riley from Step Brothers and his comedic work and uh, Talladega Nights and so on and so forth. The Dewey Cox movie. Dewey Cox, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. It's very difficult to remove him from that because he almost feels like he's playing comedic even when he's not. Now, his performance in this and his role in this is not as comedic as it is in Boogie Nights because this movie isn't really... Boogie Nights is almost like a soft comedy. This He's not as comedic. He's Well, he's quite ridiculous in Boogie Nights, to be honest. And that's kind of the, the genesis of that kind of like goofy character. He's like... It's almost like his trademark character. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Because when you get into bumbling almost, because when you get into Magnolia, it's the same thing. He's kind of this bumbling character who who has, who's wanting to be taken serious. And that's the same in, in, in Boogie Nights where he's this kind of bumbling character who wants to be taken serious. He's in the perfect storm. He's Gangs of New York. He's, he's almost not even a character in Gangs of New York. Well, he kind of is. But even in then, when you when you watch Gangs of New York and you see him, he still kind of, he feels funny, even though he's not playing a funny character. Quite a range of stuff and uh, quite a range tonally, all the way up till 2022 when he's in Stars at Noon. Was the la- and we did Stars at Noon, the Claire Denis That's movie. right. That's right. Yeah, he was he was like on a video call. Well, that was a he's co- the magazine editor. That was a COVID movie. So yeah, he is in Licorice Pizza too. But I feel like it's an uncredited cameo. It is. Yeah. Also, let's not forget he's in, isn't he in the Tim and Eric stuff? I, I've never seen any of those, so I'm not sure. Me neither. The only thing I recognize him, I remember was like, it's like a meme thing where he plays that, he's like a comedic guy called Dr. John Brule or Dr. 
with Steve Brule, which is like a comedic doctor on like it's like YouTube shorts, which I think is to do with Tim and Eric. To be honest with you, that I don't know anything about that whole thing. So, but he's <laughs> he's famous because of that too. <laughs> so that covers John C. Riley. The main two in the movie is Phil Baker Hall, John C. Riley. It's their relationship. It's their relationship that starts the movie, and it's their relationship that is key, like pivotal to the plot of the movie. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, specifically those two actors. Who else is in it? We have Gwyneth Paltrow. She probably acted for a handful of years after this, and then kind of came back a little bit stronger in the when MCU kicked off, and she has her little kind of bit part in that. She got her debut in Hook. We mentioned on the podcast a little while back on one of our movie trivia questions back in 1991, Higher Learning, which is a fun movie with Ice Cube. If anybody <laughs> hasn't seen that, it's pretty fun. Is it Ice Cube? It's Ice Cube and Buster Rhymes. Yeah, it's a pretty fun movie. Seven. I think Seven's the movie that really put her on the map as Brad Pitt's uh, ill-fated fiance. I think she is, isn't she? In that movie. Straight from that into Hard Eight. In, then she really kind of like took off. And they were pushing her as a lead in romantic comedies like The Paul Bearer, Emma, Sliding Doors, the remake of Great Expectations with Ethan Hawke, Perfect Murder with Michael Douglas, Shakespeare in Love, Talented Mr. Ripley, which is a fabulous movie. And then honestly, from there, and then she hits really with the Royal Tenenbaums, which is, I guess, yeah, most people are going to, as Margot Tenenbaum, which most people are going to remember her by, I think of our age group. That's kind of like, that and Talented Mr. Ripley are the two movies I think about when I think about Gwyneth Paltrow. I, I was going to say, yeah, it's that one and then the Tenenbaums. I mean, that's the only way that I want to remember besides, you know, just being in a box. So <laughs> Her later period career, really, I think she, obviously we know she got into her own business. She married Chris Martin, the, the singer from Coldplay. She, she, very much she's moved into that celebrity stratosphere, less about the movies, more about her career, and I, I guess, as a mother and, and, and a celebrity, really, at that point. But nothing really, in my opinion, nothing of note really passed. Perhaps Two Lovers with Joaquin Phoenix, which is a good movie. Post that, honestly, nothing. Samuel L. Jackson rounds out the cast. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson played a character called Jimmy in this movie, which is the quintessential Samuel L. Jackson role. He's just, what more can you say about Samuel L. Jackson, really? Yeah, he kind of played this role in a series of films. I think the first time that I really kind of noticed him was in a movie called Fresh, which I believe was a, a 90s movie, which is really good. I mean, if you haven't seen it, he plays a a father of a kind of a chess prodigy who uses his chess skills to basically avenge his sister in a way. It's kind Whoa, of it's, that sounds incredible. It's a very kind of art house. 1994, it was made. So like in the, within the same year as Pulp Fiction. And that, that cast is incredible. And that, that movie's great. If you haven't seen it, Fresh, Samuel L. Jackson's in it, and a few other people. Out of this entire cast, every single person knows who Samuel L. Jackson is. Even if you're young, you're going to know who Samuel L. Jackson is simply because of the Marvel movies, I suppose, nowadays. That's why most kids are going to recognize him from. I mean, he's on commercials. He's, he's in everything. So <laughs> He's in everything. Yeah, he's ubiquitous. <laughs> Fabulous actor. Love him. We, I don't even need to go down the, the movies he's in because it's wild and it, I'd be here all day. But you know what's interesting? If you were to watch Hard Eight, it's kind of hard to imagine that Hard Eight came out after Pulp Fiction because I know Pulp Fiction, is, is, it's such a star-making turn, like a huge star-making turn. And it's interesting that Hard Eight comes out two years after Pulp Fiction and, he, and he's very much back into that supporting actor because if you were to watch Hard Eight, you would think that it came out before Pulp Fiction. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, I, that, I, I would say that's a fair critique. You would think he he would kind of catapult into the stratosphere right after 
Pulp Fiction, and it 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 feels like it took a still a couple years after that before he became that household name almost. He's such a good go-to. If you're going to make a crime thriller, get Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> so much screen presence. Very versatile. I feel like he's never really been pushed though. I know he's done stuff and I was pretty excited. He had an Apple TV series that came out a little while back and I forgot what it was called already. It seemed like they were pushing him outside of his stereotypical badass motherfucker role. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Because I think he's very versatile. I think perhaps the most pushed outside of his comfort zone or against type for him is in Django Unchained. That's fair. That's fair. I don't remember Black Snake Moan too much. I think I've only seen it once, but I remember it kind of being not not a shocking role, but it was like, oh, that's it's it's super it's an interesting, it's kind of an interesting role, an interesting take for him. A lot of people don't like that movie. I'm a big fan of that movie. And I know it's it's a lot of people don't. It's Craig Brewer's second movie. It's his follow-up to Hustle and Flow. And I think it's the movie where it was like he was going to be huge, did Hustle and Flow, then went into this. And I think a lot of people are like, whoa, that's a crazy ass second movie. <laughs> And I think a lot of directors fall into that where they, their second movie, it's like their sophomore album. It's the album where everybody's like, Oof, I don't know. And then can you, <laughs> can you bring it back on the third? Um, but I think it's really good. You know what movie I really loved him in was, and I forgot about it because I was scrolling through his things there. 187. Do you remember that? Oh, yes. I do remember 187. He's really good in that. Isn't he? Is 187 where he's a school teacher? Yeah, he's a school teacher in that. That's right. Yeah, that is a good movie. You know, he's kind of good in the split movies. Oh, well, un- Unbreakable. Unbreakable. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's really yeah. good in Unbreakable. I mean, the man's Not a- so much Glass because that movie's <laughs> trash, but you can always say, though, safely say that if the movie's bad, he's still good in the movie. I mean, yeah, I mean, Jackie Brown, come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what would you, what would your favorite, what is your favorite Samuel L. Jackson performance. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, I'm kind of scrolling through them right now and I'm like, oh yeah, that, oh yeah, that. <laughs> For me, it's probably Jackie Brown or I think he's very good in The Hateful Eight. I do have problems with that movie, but I think he's very good in that. I I mean, Jackie Brown for me is like the quintessential Samuel L. Jackson performance. I know obviously people would say Pulp Fiction is, but I like, I just like Jackie Brown so much. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, really good. Oh, Die Hard with a Vengeance, he's very good in. <laughs> he's wonderful in that movie. I forgot he was in Kill Bill. Unbreakable, probably for me. For a lot of people too, I should imagine. So that's Samuel L. Jackson. So there's, there's your four main actors. There is a cameo in this movie by Philip Seymour Hoffman, but he's only in, it's a, a blink and you'll, well, not really blink and you'll miss it, but he's in it for about 10 minutes. It's funny when you see Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie, you expect that they're going to go back to him somehow because it's Philip Seymour Hoffman. But at the time, I think in his point of his career, he wasn't fully fledged. He wasn't like a big breakthrough at that point. So I think nowadays when you see him, if you would watch the movie now in 2023, you'll be like, oh my God, well, who is he going to play in it? Is he going to be, is he going to be this new character that comes <laughs> in and disrupts what the storyline? No. But he really isn't. He just does this really kind of good job of, you, you can kind of see that he that he had potential to kind of to grow into the uh, the Paul Thomas Anderson stratosphere, his world. You know, he, he was just he, he he had this small little part, but he really he really owned it. He really kind of 
he swung for the fences with it. And I'm kind of glad that he did, you know? Also someone else who was in Talented Mr. Ripley. Exactly. Yeah. A bit of a bit of a crossover there. And I think too, that's a good way to describe his performance in this, albeit brief, is swing for the fences because I think it might be a bit much for some people because he's really pushing it and he's very good at playing an asshole, Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah. and you can see why <laughs> from this, but he's it's almost on the edge where it almost takes you out of the movie because he acts and behaves so much more extrovert and over the top than everybody else in the movie. Yeah. The movie does hit almost a tipping point with him and it reigns it back in. But yeah, he's like, it's like dropping a bomb in the, in the middle of what is otherwise kind of a, a, a quietly paced, thorough, complex movie. And then you drop him in. He's like that wild card. So it might take some people out of the movie. I can see that. Yeah. That tonally, tonally, it switches just for that little bit because Sydney, Philip Baker Hall, he, he really doesn't, he's so into, he's so in that character. He doesn't break at all. You know, there's no, there's no back and forth. There's no give and take. It's just, he's very much, you know, the old school samurai that he is sort of thing. I think for, for Hall's character, who is, who is our POV character, you know, our protagonist, it's a story pretty much of redemption it's a for for me when i was watching it i've seen it a handful of times but it's been a while but when i sat down with it the other day i was like this is kind of this is a story of redemption for an older criminal i mean there's no sugarcoating that he was a criminal and he's having to redeem himself for his past discretions for his past kind of abandoning his family in a way that you find out. So there's a lot of things in in his past that really maybe he didn't have control over in in the beginning of his kind of criminal career, but it seems like that that character has made it out where others really didn't and he is trying to maybe redeem those sins that he feels that he's carrying to a degree because there's a certain point at later in the movie where he's like this is a this is as far as I'll go for these people but my life has to be my life sort of thing it's interesting because throughout the movie in the in the the bits of information that we learn from him and his backstory like you said the estrangement of his children and he's a person that is introduced as being very in control and very smart but very level headed but with that you understand that this is coming from a point of experience. Like he's he's worked up to that. So it, it, he's not where he's at right now without all of the mistakes that he's probably made in the past. When he introduces himself to John C. Riley's character, which is John. John. So when he introduces himself to John, we can see John is very destitute, down and out. And he is very self-assured and very confident. And we know that he either sees something in John that reminds him of himself, which doesn't really turn out to be the case. But he he know, he's aware of the fact that through his experience, through the years of the grind that he's put into it, he can be of some assistance to this guy who's totally down and out and probably like a really bad point in his life. And I think that's a huge element to this movie is his atonement or what he's willing to put himself through when he hits the point where he feels like he's fully atoned for what he's done in the past. So I definitely think that is like a, a running theme throughout the movie. And it's also, he is with Gwyneth Paltrow's character, Clementine and John. It's obvious, even without really knowing what's going on too much, it's kind of obvious that these are like surrogate children for him because he does mention that he has a son 
and a daughter, both around both of those characters' ages, who he hasn't seen in a long time. Even before he mentions that, it's kind of obvious that he's kind of playing this father role, especially, especially with Clementine. He's very protective of Clementine and very concerned about the decision she's making in not in a predatory way, in a very fatherly kind of way. Yeah, there's nothing about him that has a, a feeling of, of being inappropriate or a predator or anything like that. Like he, he, he'll correct people when they speak kind of crassly about, uh, about women or, or rude in his kind of presence. You know, he'll, he'll put people in check, you know, if he needs to, but never in a arrogant way or anything like that. It seems like this character, everything is calculated. He's a, he's a calculated character. So with his relationship as it develops with John and John kind of hero worships him, the, the movie addresses that too. Where it's funny because they don't really mention it, but he actually ends up buying the same car that he has. I don't know if you notice that when he follows him in the car, he pulls out and he's driving the same car as Sydney. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. Down to the way he dresses, the way he carries himself. I like that little touch. It, the, the movie mentions other things like he orders the same drink that Sydney drinks at the bar. That little touch isn't brought up, but it's like a catch it. If you blink and you'll miss it moment, but it's really fun. The little fun Easter egg that's in there. Straight away, as the movie opens in the opening credits, first scene onwards, it's a pretty killer display of directing chops, in my opinion. If this is his first feature film coming out the coming out the gate, right? Not only does the movie look incredible and look super cinematic, but the scene where John C. Riley is sitting outside of the diner on his knees, on his hunches almost wrapped up, looks destitute, looks like a homeless person. And the camera is following Sydney as he walks towards him just from the back. And we see him. And then eventually as the camera keeps going, it's like that tracking shot. And then it goes up in it until he gets up in front of him. And you see his reflection in the doorway of the diner, standing next to John C. Riley, And he introduces himself. And he's like, hey, do you need a cigarette? Do you look like you need a cup of coffee? Can I buy, can I give you a cigarette? Can I buy you a cup of coffee? Out of the gate, there's so much control going on in the directing by PTA. It's kind of bananas when you watch this movie to think that this is somebody's first movie because this movie feels like it's the movie that somebody makes 10 years into their career. It's so well made. I'll say this. I, I agree with you, but I, I'm going to push back a little bit on that and say that this, that the movie, say by itself, if Paul Thomas Anderson didn't become, you know, the director that he is. To me, this movie is almost a throwaway 90s movie, not technically, not in the kind of technical sense. I mean, it's all, everything's there. I mean, it, it's a cast, incredible dialogue, the way it looks, everything's amazing. But it, it kind of, ha- what's amazing about this and, and kind of the reason that I didn't start with Boogie Nights and I wanted to start with Heart Eight is because you get to see kind of the the seeds and the beginning of someone who not even slowly, but just comes out of the gate swinging like crazy. His second feature is close to a masterpiece. And by the time you get to the end of the line, it's like he has mastered the the form altogether. And it, to me, it's interesting because I don't think uh, most people would see it in this movie what is about to happen or how how a career is about to roll out. Because to me, while I'm watching, I'm like, this is a movie that I've seen in the 90s before. It was kind of like that early, that that Tarantino, like that whole new wave of directors was happening. And some of them have kind of fallen by the wayside. But Paul Thomas Anderson just did something completely different, took the reins of of 
kind of a masterclass of of the form and just kind of went for it and went for it and succeeded too. So my whole thing was I didn't see that from this movie. I remember liking this movie, but I think it was because I I liked everything that was happening in the 90s at that time. There's no way that you could have told me that this guy is going to make Boogie Nights. Not only that, he made it a year later. I know, I know. That's that's what's so crazy about it. And then a handful of years later, he makes a perfect movie in There Will Be Blood. You know what's crazy too? So like if you to watch this, I think it, it's possible to watch this movie and not know it's a PTA movie. I don't think it's possible to watch later PTA movies and not know it's a PTA movie. But it is possible to have seen this movie and have a conversation. Somebody say, oh, well, I really like Hard Eight, his first movie. And you'd be like, wait, I've seen that. Was his? That, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, I think it, it's possible to do that. Also, I think as assured and confident and capable that he showed himself of being on this first movie, you do see a lot of other stuff in this movie though. So I see Goodfellas in this movie. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. With the tracking shots yeah, throughout yeah, the casino, yeah. I see Goodfellas like 100%. I see a lot of Scorsese in this version and I do see some Tarantino too. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely see some Tarantino and I know he's one of his contemporaries, but I feel like Tarantino was already out of the gate by the time this movie came out. Tarantino had already put Pulp Fiction out by the time this movie came out. I can see Tarantino in this movie, definitely. Yeah, in a lot, a lot of Scorsese, which makes sense that he's obviously being influenced. Now, I'm sure movie scholars and people who are smarter than you and I, Eric, even though me and you are pretty fucking smart, can probably mention a million movies that replicating this or a million directors that he's using because he's obviously a student of cinema, just like I imagine Tarantino was too. But again, we're not that podcast. I'm not going to start reading archives about Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> That's not really what we're try- trying to do. Yeah, you can see the DNA of him in this movie, but really it does feel like he's also really shown his influences in this movie. Later on, I feel like he has more of his own style, if that's a fair thing to say. I think so. I think so. I think I think with um, with Hard Eight, the fuse was lit, you know? And I think once you hit Boogie Nights, then the explosion happens. And then it's nonstop from that point on. And especially to go from a movie with four main actors to go to a movie that has an ensemble cast of like 12, however many, like A-list actors, not A-list in terms of celebrity, but like quality. I mean, everybody in this movie is a really good actor. Everybody in Boogie Nights is a good actor from top to bottom. That cast is stacked. And then going into Magnolia, that cast is stacked. It's like every 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 turn, it's like one, one up, one up, one up, one up. Yeah. Right off the bat, we're introduced to this character called Sydney, who's an, an older gentleman. He is befriending this young man called John, who seems like a tall fuck up. <laughs> he really does. He seems like almost like a pathetic character. And what's interesting is Sydney has seems to have this endless patience with him. This endless patience. So it's one thing to be like, hey, do you need a cigarette? Do you need five bucks to get a cup of coffee? It's another thing to sit down with this guy and to listen to this guy's life story and to not judge him. And then he definitely perks up when he starts to hear about that John is basically, he went to Gamble and I think he went to Reno, didn't he? Or Atlantic City. He, he went over there and he, and he lost a ton of money, but it turns out that he was trying to get money together for a funeral, a family funeral, which spikes the interest of Sydney. And Sydney's like, well, I can see what I can do to help you get this arrangement in place. But he goes, if you go back, if I give you a hundred bucks, I give you 50 bucks, because that's what he's asking for. If I give you 50 bucks, we'll have this conversation at Diana. If for you to go back and gamble, you're going to lose that money. And that's not how you're going to be able to do it. Trust me. If you listen to me, I can help you turn that $50 into a room 
and a meal. And then from there, we can see where we go from there. But I can't give you $50 and you're not going to make $6,000. And I don't have $6,000 to give you. So what do you want to do? John, admittedly, at the beginning is like, where's the red flags here? Like, (laughs) are you trying to sleep with me? Are you trying to take advantage of me? Which is bold of him to think, you know, as if, as if. But he he reluctantly, he's like, okay, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll take your word for it. I'll ride with you. Well, let's see what this is all about. And then we're introduced. So he basically takes him to the casino and he goes, this is how we're going to do it. And this is what's fascinating about the movie. And this is what I love. And I love gambling movies for this reason. I especially love movies that kind of get behind the scenes and like the machinations of how casinos work. And he introduces the scam, which is using uh, a rate card, which is something that I didn't know existed because I'm not a gambler. Are you a gambler, Eric? No, no. I mean, I have gambled in the past, but it's like, I, you get to the point where you're like, I'm not good at this, so let's call it a day sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and by using the rate cards, I'm not going to get too into the details. If you've seen the movie, you know what we're talking about. If you haven't seen the movie, then you'll figure it out when you watch the movie. But it's basically a scam now where you take that $50 and you, you kind of build up this theoretical ledger using this rate card, which really shows on paper that you're spending more money than you're actually spending uh, through a pretty ingenious system. Do you think that was a real system? It must have been a real system. They obviously stopped it. Yeah, I would think it, at some point it was probably a real thing because all he's doing is he just keeps recycling the same $100 bill. So after a hard day's gambling, essentially, we find out that he manages to secure himself a room. Really, we're off to the races. And then after that first day with Sydney and John, and under, John's, uh, under Sydney's mentorship, John is relatively successful. And he's found out this new little side hustle that he can have. And then we kind of jump forward in time. And I'm not sure how many, is it years that passed or wanna, is it like I want to say it's like two years, maybe. maybe, maybe. I think it is two years. So basically the movie jumps forward and we're reintroduced to Sydney and John. And John at this point is completely transformed. He doesn't dress like a bum. He's, he's wearing a decent suit. You can tell he's, that he's become relatively successful. And him and Sydney appear to be basically living and running this system. Not necessarily this same system, but the full-time professional gamblers is what I would class them as. Very reserved but smartly playing the system, not making a ton of money. We're not talking about these guys making 20, 30, 40, $50,000. They're making $1,000 here, $1,000 there, but they're being careful about it and they're measuring what they do. And they're basically like leeching off the system in order to stay afloat, which I think is the best way to describe it. There's no like crazy ass wild bets like there are in the, in the movie, The Gambler. There's no um, big crazy hustles going on. It's very much like a working jobbing. I was going to say it's a very, it's, it's almost a job. It's like a working class nine to five job where they're just, just gambling. That's what they do. And at this point, we are introduced to Jimmy, played by Samuel Jackson. Over the years, John is befriended. And Jimmy, as it turns out, works security and he works on the floor in one of the nightclubs. Jimmy asks John to introduce him to Sydney because he's like, hey, I've heard of this guy. I've seen this guy gamble back in the day. I've seen him throw down crazy bets. This guy was wild. He was fearless back in the day. So he wants to meet him. When Jimmy goes over with John, immediately Sydney's on the back foot. And you can tell Sydney's like, I don't like this guy. This guy's loose. This guy's running his mouth. This guy's rude. He is the antithesis of what I am as a person. I'm very controlled. I'm very mild-mannered. I stay out the limelight. I don't get myself involved in big crazy shit. And this guy's like, you know what I mean? Just trying to, he's like a fanboy, really, essentially. Yeah, it's, it's that. And he's probably been in that lifestyle for a very, very long time. And Sydney 
is he reads people, you know, he, he watches people, he reads people, he knows people. He's probably been doing it most of his life. You know, it, I mean, that's part of his job basically. Um, and then that it's, it's almost, it's strange. It's almost like, you know, Sydney's the father, John's the son. And then John brings up, brings in his kind of carefree friend and Sydney is like trying to be this protective father figure. Like, Hey, don't, don't be careful basically with, where your kind of attention is going to don't be influenced because you know where you can fall back to sort of thing. Yeah. Because we've got this far, we have a good system going. I've shown you the ropes. You have matured quite a bit, but like this is the wrong element. And that's a very fatherly thing to do. You're right. Around the same time, we are introduced to Clementine. Now Clementine played by Gwyneth Paltrow is a waitress serving cocktails at the casino. And she has a very cute friendship with uh, Sydney. And it's very much Sydney at one point sits her down and he's like, hey, I know that you get paid to be nice to people in the casino wants you to be nice to people, but you can just be yourself with me. You don't need to give the, you don't need to flirt with me in order for me to tip you. We can be friends. I'm here. I'm here. Like I'm part of the furniture. He's like part of the furniture yeah. in, in the casino. <laughs> As I should imagine, a lot of those old timers are, and a lot of people are. I'm not, I'm not in from out of town. I'm not on a bachelor party. I'm not trying to blow money. I'm not trying to act like a dickhead. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be coming back. You can talk to me one-to-one, which is very refreshing. And straight away, you can see like there's a delicateness that he has with her. A lot like he does with John, to be fair. He's a bit more authoritarian with John because John's a bit more of a fuck-up on the scale of (laughs) fuck-ups. Even though Clementine is being making a, she's making a lot of bad decisions for herself, she's also in a shitty situation. So her situation is she's, she's caught in this, this cycle that I guess a lot of young, attractive women were at that period of time working on the strip or off the strip or whatever, where they were essentially working as prostitutes. Yeah, yeah. And turning tricks to make a bit of extra cash, uh, which is not only super dangerous. Well, it is. I mean, that's the, bottom, the beginning yeah. and end of it. It's a super <laughs> dangerous thing to do. And he is aware of what she's doing and through acts of kindness and him supporting her and getting to know her as a person, he's like, hey, you can come and stay at my hotel. You, you, you just need a good good night's rest. Clean up, wash up, get your, get your shit together. And it's at that point that we kind of realize that she is also familiar, obviously, with John. So she knows who John is. She knows that John's following around Sydney. She thinks that relationship is very cute. And then as it basically unfolds, we find out that she has is being this burgeoning relationship with John. It's funny because I think with Sydney, he thinks, okay, I've succeeded with John. I know kind of I know the steps I have to take to bring someone kind of up from the bottom or the gutter or whatever to kind of get them on the right path, sort of thing. And I kind of see his relationship with Clementine in a, the same light, you know. John's successful now. John's okay. Everything's going to be okay with him. Now, this is my new focus sort of thing. So I, w- I wonder if that if that's where that kind of relationship was going um, before everything kind of went sideways. And maybe he might have misread the, the situation. Like it, it could be the only time that he has kind of messed up in a way where he wasn't as aware of how bad dire the situation was with her 
Yeah, I think he kind of under, underestimated just how bad the situation was. And I also think there's an element of him getting involved with Clementine because I think he, the movie doesn't really hint this, but I, I kind of read this, like he obviously knows that John must be sweet on it. And I and I don't know if also part of this is also for John's benefit, like him taking an interest in Clementine is also because he probably knows that John's not in a position mentally or emotionally to realize that he needs to, you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know at what point he's aware of their relationship. Or if it just comes out of the blue and he's just doing this solely because he's like, well, I've taken care of John. John's all right now. John does need to kind of not fuck around with Jimmy too much, but I think John will be okay. Now, here I am just playing Kino at the table, minding my own business. This is another project for him. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in a sense, I mean, that's kind of what, that's one reading you could take from it. That's how I perceived it this time around. He seems like he's very much kind of a fixer of situations. You know, it's like he, he makes his money and then he invests his time in, in people at that point to go back to what I originally said, which is that redemption arc that he's kind of looking for. He set his past aside behind him. So he thinks so he can do good with whatever time he has left. And, and that's kind of, I think what she represents for him at that point. I agree. On one ill-fated morning, he basically sets Clementine off with John to go buy clothes at the mall. He's like, hey, look after Clementine today. She needs some new clothes. Go to the mall, get some new clothes, spend the day together. She needs some food. He's like, have you got money? John's like, yeah, I got money. Don't worry. Because of course John does, because he's, he's relatively successful by now at this point. So Sydney just lets him go, goes about his daily business. And then really what unfolds is the cat, the catalyst for the rest of the movie. So ultimately what ends up happening is John gets a call from Sydney. Uh, sorry, Sydney gets a call from John. John's freaking out. He's like, hey, can you come to this hotel room? I need help. Don't ask me why. Sydney shows up at the hotel room. He's like, what the hell's going on? Turns out that Clementine, well, at first it turns out that Clementine and John got married in a, like a Vegas style <laughs> chapel out of the blue. And then immediately after getting married for some insane reason, and maybe it's because she's on this self-destruction kick and she maybe she's just like, maybe her getting married to John she kind of spiraled and she's like, oh, well, I need to, I still need to make money. I still need to, because it's, it, it's very unclear the motivation why she would go from such a thing. Whereas now John's making money. She's with John. John could theoretically help her out, but she immediately goes back and turns a trick essentially with another customer, goes back to his hotel room, sleeps with the guy. And the guy basically turns around and says, I'm not going to pay you. So she freaks out and she gets super angry because at this point she's being fucking used and used and used and used by men after men after men. And the indignity of having to do that on top of the indignity, the fact that he just felt like he didn't even have to pay her for it, that she wasn't even worth paying for what she just subjected herself to, to him. So she gets furious, gets John over, John fucking loses his mind. John beats the shit out of the guy, knocks him unconscious. And then they come up with this harebrained scheme to hold him hostage, hostage essentially, call his wife, demand $300. <laughs> So they're going to do this for $300 because that was the going rate to sleep with Clementine. Now, obviously I know back in the early nineties, that's $300, but $300 today is still a lot of money, but to take somebody hostage over is kind of insane. Which is what, when Sydney's kind of pulled into it, he comes to that realization, like $300 really, you probably have like 10 times that sitting in the in a bank somewhere. So yeah, it's 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 so ridiculous it, how they become so principled in a way. So, but it's in that moment, I think he still realizes that he's dealing with children in, in this essentially, yeah, yeah, in this very kind of dangerous situation, you know. And and um, 
in a way the the this the old sydney starts to kind of kick back in at that point it do, that doesn't really happen until the the you get this confrontation with the uh, jimmy character where he goes you know kind of full sydney i guess by the end of it and you, you kind of get an idea of the type of person that he used to be that informs what he has been trying to kind of do throughout the whole movie to make up for it yeah it's not until the a revelation that happens after this and it's not until sydney gets forced into being sydney that you really click everything else into place it thoroughly explains the beginning of the movie because on paper the beginning of the movie it doesn't make any sense really why sydney would take somebody like john andrews by the end of the movie it all makes total sense why he did it so basically john is freaking out sydney comes over sydney it essentially acts as a cleaner and figures out this situation, gets the two of them out of the situation, puts them in a car and says, get the fuck out of town till the heat dies down. I'll get rid of this gun. You got off Jimmy, which was a stupid move. And he, the whole time he's like, wait, are you, what's going on with Jimmy? Did, was Jimmy here? Did you call Jimmy? And you can tell in his head, he's like, oh, this is getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah. What am I getting myself <laughs> into? And it's almost like he's at a breaking point where he's like, is this worth, is this worth the hassle of me doing this for these two people? even though I've invested so much time in them, like, are they pushing me beyond what I'm willing to do to help them? But they still don't really do that because he's like, hey, I love you like you're a son. I love you. I'll look after you. I'll give you every single penny that I have for you guys to get out of this situation. So he sends them off to Niagara Falls in a funny moment. Uh, John's like, I don't want to go to Niagara Falls. He's like, why don't you want to go there? I've already been there. He's like, dude, just get the fuck to Niagara Falls. So he gets them out of town. Now, in the next few days, he's, he's basically seeing what's going on. As the dust settle, this guy didn't see Sydney. He barely saw John and he had a concussion. So there's every chance that this guy might wake up and feel embarrassed about what he did, not want to call the police. His wife not might want to call the police, might not want to get anybody involved because it's $300 and the guy slept with a prostitute. So his reputation might be on the line. So there's a chance that this thing blows under, under the bridge, which is exa- exactly what happened. This becomes a non-event. We find that out because Jimmy, out of the blue, calls Sydney. He's like, hey, can we have a meeting? So Sydney goes to meet Jimmy. Samuel Jackson's character and he has to sit down with him and he's like hey you don't need to worry about anything I'm working security on the floor I see what's going on I saw the guy the next day he's back at it like nothing happened everything's fine the two kids are going to be fine but and here's the but he goes I remember who you are and this is where we find out about Sydney and if you have any doubts about the city I think it's hinted that Sydney has a past this is where we really understand what Sydney's past is Sydney as it turns out in this revelation killed John's father they don't say why he killed him or how he killed him. He shot him, but we don't know the circumstances. And my guess is John's father was either a gambler. John's father was in debt to Sydney, who was maybe a loan shark. or We don't know, but it, it's potentially mob related. It's definitely organized crime related. And through serious events, Sydney killed John's father. Jimmy's like, I'm going to blackmail you. You need to give me $6,000 right now. Well, he starts with 10000 He works him down to six. And he's like, you need to give me money right now, or I'm going to tell. I'm going to tell John exactly what's happened. Now, he knows how much John means to Sydney. And he is aware of the fact that Sydney's trying to turn his life around. So he knows that this is crucially important that John does not find out the truth. So Jimmy's really relying on the fact that he's going to give in and give him the money, which he does. So he's basically like, okay, I tell you what, if you promise this, it'll all go away. I'll give you money. If, as long as you promise, you promise you're not going to do it. And you promise you're not going to kill me when I give you the money. And it's interesting because it's very much Sydney. It's like, as if, if you imagine, it's like a wolf in sheep's clothing. All of a sudden, he's really, he reduces himself. He becomes very meek. He almost begs him not to kill him. And he's really working against Jimmy's expectation of the situation. And it's very much Sydney, like making himself small, making himself seem not threatening in. 
and like stepping back from the situation and being like, I'll give you anything you want, I promise. Yeah. Sydney's not stupid though. Sydney knows people like Jimmy do not go away after this. If he squeezed them once, he's going to squeeze them again. He's going to keep coming back. Yeah. I mean, he he's, he's an opportunist, if nothing else. And I think once everything goes down, Sydney's probably calculating his odds of making it out alive. And when, the, when they're in the hotel room and he's kind of discussing worth as far as worth as money, worth as relationships and stuff like that, he, he, he's basically saying, I'll do whatever I have to do to get this money to you. But it's everything is kind of in service of me walking out of this alive, you know? My love and attention will basically only go so far as me living out of this situation, you know? It's like, I'll give you everything that I have. Don't tell John what you know, but all that being kind of said and done, if I had to choose, you know, money over relationships or life, you know, I'm going to choose life. So I think at that point, he kind of showed, he shows his hand and Jimmy buys it at that point. So I think once... He he knows everything's going to be okay once he hands the money over and that Jimmy doesn't kind of kill him on the spot. He's like, okay, I, I I can get this back. It's it's no problem. So then that that character kind of kicks in at that point and starts his kind of John Wick art. I guess. Yeah, albeit briefly. Albeit we briefly, start to, yeah. it, and I feel like too up until the point where John calls Sydney about the situation in the hotel with Clementine. The, mo- the movie feels like a different kind of movie. And you're wondering, the whole time you're watching, you're like, well, what is this movie? Is this a movie about a heist? Is it about a scam? Is he recruiting people? Is that why he's showing an interest in Clementine? Is that why he's showing an interest in John? Like, what's the angle? As a list, as a viewer, we're looking for the angle. We're looking for Sydney's angle. What kind of a movie is this? Is it just a, a, a relationship drama? Is it just like a, a slice of life kind of movie? The minute we go to the hotel room, it kind of sets it on the path of this is a crime drama. This is a thriller, albeit a kind of a muted one. And then with this revelation and with Jimmy's blackmail, Sydney essentially waits for Jimmy to go out and do what Jimmy does, which is get fucking wasted, roll a bunch of crazy. I think he's playing blackjack or is he playing craps? I think he's playing craps, craps isn't he? Yeah. He essentially breaks into Jimmy's house, sets himself up very much John Wick style, yeah. <laughs> sits there in the dark with the light off, with a gun pointed at the door, waits for him to come in. And then I need my money back. One thing leads to another. He ends up killing in cold blood, Jimmy. Jimmy comes back with a, uh, a lady. I don't know if it's a prostitute or if it's just somebody's mat. And the lady get, freaks out and runs away. Sydney just ices him, like straight up murders him, like mob hit style. <laughs> yeah. And it turns out that Jimmy had been gambling with that money. Of course he did. The money that he got, the $6,000. And I think Jimmy made more money. He made, yeah, so he made I think he gets more, back yeah. more than his six grand. That stack looks a bit thicker when he gets it back. <laughs> so he basically leaves the scene of the crime. And at that point, it's pretty safe to say he's very smart. He wipes down the gun. I think he, he uses one of Jimmy's, Jimmy's guns, guns on him. Yeah, yeah, he does. Which is very smart. So he obviously knows what he's doing. And where, so right now we just like, it all makes sense. All of this stuff makes sense about Sydney. You're aware of how calculated he can be. You're aware of how ruthless and cold-blooded he can be which is obviously what led him in the situation to kill John's father. The movie really never explains what happened though. No, no, it, it really doesn't. And it kind of, it made me think about it. He, from the first scene, you kind of see him pull up to the, the coffee shop basically where John's at. And I'm thinking to myself, knowing what I know about the movie, how long has he been following him 
or how long, how does exactly. he, how does he know that he's there? You know? So how is he keeping track of him the entire time? Because like how, how long ago did he kill his father? Has he been kind of keeping dibs on him the entire time? Or did he just look him up out of the blue and try and figure out where he was? Because it doesn't really explain how he happened upon this down and out guy who he was trying to redeem some past sin, you know, of his life, you know. But it really kind of makes you think, how long had he been keeping tabs on the John character? So let me ask you this, and the funeral that John's trying to pay for, is that his mother's funeral? Yeah, it's his mother's funeral. That makes sense because at one point during the movie, you're like, wait, is he paying for his dad's funeral? In which case, if he's paying for his father's funeral, Sydney just recently killed his father yeah. in that case. <laughs> no. That would be quite a quick turnaround for him yeah. to be like all of a sudden have like this whole change of heart. So he's obviously been waiting on an opportunity to help this kid. And it just so happens that that opportunity presents himself, presents itself. Now he's unaware of the fact that I think he's been keeping an eye on him. And but when he finds out that John is trying to do the gambling for a funeral, that comes as a surprise to Sydney. So I don't know how close he's been really following him. Because if he was really following him close, he would know that his mother had died. I'm kind of curious if if it was just kind of happenstance that all that kind of played out. Because you you get that like later on in Magnolia, you get that kind of that play where it's like consequence. All these things are happening and they're happening yes. for a reason sort of thing. So he goes back to this to that idea of certain things have kind of happened throughout life to bring us here sort of thing. So it, it could be it could be that. And then he reexamines that in Magnolia, or it could be a case where the Sydney character was kind of keeping track of of this this guy the entire time. Yeah, and uh, yeah, like you said, it could just be a, a tale of second chances. Yeah, or coincidences. Yeah, it just so happens that life throws you these weird coincidences, or it could be that life gives you second chances because all of the characters get a second chance. Sydney has a second chance. John gets a second chance, and so does Clementine. Yeah, I mean, well. Yeah, John John actually gets a third chance, I think, uh, by the end of really, it. Really, he does, know? yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So there's definitely like that undercurrent of a theme going through it. Then after, so basically after killing Jimmy, the really there's not much else happens in the movie other than we see John having a telephone conversation with Sydney, where Sydney admits to John over the telephone. He's like, hey, I've got something to tell you. He's like, I, I love you like you were my son. Like, I love you. Yeah. And after some period of time, you see John get emotional and John's like, oh, I love you too. Mm-hmm. That's where, as a viewer, where also, if we didn't suspect it already, we really see that father-son love in, in also John's recognition of the fact that he's found a new father. He's found his family. He's found, he has no family left and he, found, he has found this like father figure in Sydney and Sydney's basically found a son in John. After that, the movie really ends on... Sydney back at a diner, smoking a cigarette, going about his day-to-day business. Yeah, nothing's nothing's gonna change with that character. Well, there's that there's that last shot where you see a bit of blood on his on his sleeve right there, and then he covers it up. You know, it's it's like it's like if you want to be like heady about it, I guess, you know, it could be like the violence is always kind of right under the surface with this character. I mean, I think that's pretty much right on the head. Yeah, I mean, no matter how much you kind of try and cover up who you who you are, you can't change what you know what you are at your core, sort of thing. Yeah, and it's very much Sydney is going to have to for the rest of his life. 
pull down that sleeve, cover up that, cover up his past. Yeah. Get on with things, put on a face, put on a front. But like you said, yeah, you can never, you can't run your past. You still have blood on your hands, so to speak, or you should. 100%. And it's a very quiet way to end the movie. There's no reunitement with, uh, or reunion with John and Sydney. We're left to suppose that there may be one further down the line because obviously John's off the hook. Nobody's looking for him. And now Jimmy's out the way. Nobody's going to find out. So you're guessing at some point, John and Clementine will return from Niagara Falls and they'll probably reunite. They could just all just go their separate ways, to be honest, because this is before cell phones, before any any of that. I don't see Sydney like using a cell phone or like reconnecting in that way. Again, he's just kind of he's he probably has his little routine where he goes from Reno to Vegas to Atlanta City and like this little circuit that he goes back and forth on sort of thing. And so if they happen, maybe if they happen to, uh, to cross paths again. Maybe it'll happen. I don't. I don't know. Really, you kind of hope that they don't end up back in any sort of uh, like Vegas or any of those places because it's just not conducive to a successful relationship with those characters. <laughs> what do you think of the music in this? The like the use of the music because he does this thing where it's this very. I think it's in the beginning. It's this bell that happens. This tone. This bell. It's this like heaviness where the movie isn't really heavy throughout it until the end, really. But it starts off with this kind of very heavy tone, this heavy bell that happens that kind of gives an ominous tone or presence to the movie in the very beginning. And it kind of happens a little bit later on, too. But that same tone, if you pay attention to it, also finds its way back into Boogie Nights, where we're going to talk to it next, where I think it's like when it goes into the halfway point at the New Year's Eve party, I think that's the kind of same tone that maybe even the same sound finds its way back into Boogie Nights. So that's, I'd be interested in when watching these other films, if you are able to kind of hear that music throughout any of his other films as well. It's interesting you said that because I've always felt, I've always felt with PTA movies, there's an undercurrent of uneasiness in all of them, even yeah. when the movie is more... That I would say Boogie Nights is probably his most lighthearted in parts, but also it's very dark. Very Boogie dark Nights by the end, too. Yeah. But I feel like there's even movies like Licorice Pizza, which seem relatively lighthearted. They're always, they always feel uneasy. There's a queasiness, almost is the best way to put it, where you, it always feels like something bad might happen in yeah, his movies at any point. Yeah, there you like go. something yeah. might sour quicker than, than others. I would say the master feels un- uneasy from beginning to end. Like that whole movie oh, feels yeah, yeah. unsettling. It has no relief in terms of that like ominous atmosphere. But this the hard eight definitely has that. Because I feel like it's very difficult to read hard eight tonally. It's it's easy to read it as being like there's very few moments of like levity or like humor in it. There's moments of sweetness and kindness, and then there's like some shocking moments too. It just doesn't really present itself as a specific vibe or a specific, it doesn't really put its cards on the table. It's very floaty in in that mood. And I feel like, yeah, and I feel like that continues through because I recently rewatched Boogie Nights. I will do again, obviously for the series, but going back to Boogie Nights and not seeing it for a long time. Same. I think the last time I saw Boogie Nights was almost, it could have even been theaters. I was very shocked at, yeah, how dark Boogie Nights gets yeah <laughs> uh, because you remember in your head a bit more as being like this rise and fall movie and it is and it has all of those trademarks but there's there's darkness in terms of william h macy's character 
um, the Julianne Moore character, the Roller Girl character, Heather Graham. She has like like a a pretty dark storyline too. If you happen to watch it again, keep an ear out for that for that kind of tone that makes its way through that. Because I want to say it's like it's at at the middle point with the Roller Girl scene, the H Macy suicide scene. The H Macy, yeah, the and then the Wahlberg when he's kind of on the the downward spiral of his kind of his meth addiction and like all that sort of stuff. But there's something happening happening within that scene, within that kind of crazy, chaotic, uneasiness scene. With there's this music that makes its way through that whole thing that is in this movie, and uh, I find that fascinating. Yeah, that's very cool. I also would like to mention what we talked about the opening tracking shot, the over the shoulder shot with Sydney walking towards the diner. It, the movie mirrors it and bookends it at the end where he walks back up to the diner, but John's not there. And I don't know if it's the same diner. It it is. Yeah, it's yeah, it's the exact it is same, the same diner. diner. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it mirrors that scene where he walks up to the doorway. So I, I like that that motif of it closing up starting and closing the movie, I think is really nice. And I think visually throughout too. I'm not sure who the DP was on this movie. And again, we're not going to get in the weeds with all that stuff, but like the visual, I think the movie is shot very, very well from top to bottom. They do, he does a lot of those warners, a lot of those like free cam, steady cam shots where he's following around in the casino, like wrapping around, go following characters around as they, as they walk around between tables and what have you. It feels very classic in its framing in it's the, the widescreen in the aspect ratio and it doesn't look cheap and it you know what it, it doesn't look too is it doesn't look like a lot of movies from the 90s looked yeah i was just about to say that it doesn't look like that a 90s movie yeah it doesn't it looks like that like almost like tarantino movies it, almost like pulp fiction looked at that period of time where it's like there is a classic old school hollywood look to this movie it looks like a 70s hollywood movie like very 70s in my opinion that's at least in my limited experience or knowledge, <laughs> it, it feels it's shot like a classic 70s Hollywood movie. Whereas I feel like in the period of time post Pulp Fiction, post Reservoir Dogs, when everyone was jumping on that, you know, the killing Zoe's and all the rest of those movies. Yeah, everything is like a hand cam and like shaky cam. Yeah. The, the movies, I think in the 90s got kind of ugly. A lot of 90s movies kind of like visually became kind of ugly. And I feel like this movie feels very classic. Very kind of choppy, the, the way that they like told stories, very fast, fast, slow motion, fast, slow motion, like fast go, fast go sort of thing. And you're having to kind of keep up with, where with this, it's everything is very subtle. It's, it's very, you're able to stand back from it and it's, it's calm and slow enough to tell its story just with like two, two characters on the screen and that's it. And it, it, there's not a lot of fast movement that has to happen. There are some good kind of, I guess, handheld uh, shots where they're he's following really close when they're in the hotel room and, and like all the chaos is happening, but that's just what it's trying to convey is like the whole situation is just so chaotic. So that's the, I guess the camera work or how, how we're supposed to kind of experience it or see it at that point, how we're supposed to view it as just like chaotic in that sense. Is there anything else that stood out to you? No, I mean, we covered it pretty well. I'm I'm very interested in watching his next movie and talking about it because like we said in the beginning, it's I can't see the evidence of of Boogie Nights coming out of this because Boogie Nights just goes to a completely different level. You know, it's it's like within within that small amount of time, it's just like his 
kind of language in a way, almost jumps, leaps and bounds in, in, in storytelling and, and theme and use of music and character and like the, the whole thing, the whole thing just comes out of nowhere, like a, like a train that hits you. It's interesting. I, I mean, I could have started with Boogie Nights and then added in some of those other movies, but I, I don't think that you would understand the kind of the impact that uh, Boogie Nights had if you hadn't seen this first, you know? Oh yeah, I think this is the perfect place to start. Now, I don't think that we'll necessarily do that with every director that we're going to no, cover. But no, it's not, no. We're not always going to go like, this is the first movie and this is the genesis and we're moving on. I think with some directors, you kind of have to do that. For example, like with Wes Anderson, I think you would have to do Bottle Rocket. Yeah. To really get an idea of the quantum leap between Bottle Rocket and say Tenenbaums, for example. Yeah, yeah. Just like I think with PTA, you need to see this to see the the, the quantum leap forward to, to Boogie Nights. And then an even bigger leap to Magnolia. So like the leap in terms of like scale and scope between Magnolia and Boogie Nights isn't as big as the jump between Hard Eight and Boogie Nights. But what is a big jump in my opinion, and this is why I'm really curious to rewatch Magnolia, which I haven't seen in a long, long time. Long time. Yeah, the two middle movies I haven't seen in about 10 years. Yeah. Well, there you go. And I feel like if I remember correctly, the biggest quantum leap between Boogie Nights and Magnolia is his like emotional maturity in the the themes and the 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 depth in which they they really get into like the personal drama in these really complicated interwoven stories whereas boogie nights is like i said you could see goodfellas in the beginning of hard eight you can see his scorsese it's almost like he just went from making a movie that like he was like well i could do some stuff that's kind of like scorsese to making boogie nights which feels like he's making casino I was going to say like, like Heart Eight is, is almost an homage in a way where it's like, okay, I know what I'm talking about when I'm making movies. And then like here a proof it, of concept. Yeah, yeah. Proof of Thank you. Yeah. Proof of concept. This is where it is. These are the people that I follow. If you're smart enough to kind of see it, you know where we're going uh, sort of thing. And then when he gets to Boogie Nights, it, that's, it's escalated. And by the time he gets to like Magnolia and there will be blood, it's like, People are going to, in the future, I think, homage him because those are like singular in their kind of presentation. It's it's Paul Thomas Anderson at that point, you know? Don't get me wrong. Again, we'll break this down as we cover the movies. Yeah. Is in my mind, There Will Be Blood is like operating on a different level to Boogie Nights. Yeah. Entirely. I feel like Boogie Nights in a way is... And this is why this doing this like this is so exciting and, and to really like to break down the gaps between the movies is really exciting because I feel like it's like he started working out of the gym, right? When he made Hot Eight and he was going to the gym and then all of a sudden he started making gains. And then <laughs> when he made Boogie Nights, he was like, dude, I can press all of this weight. Watch me do it. And all yeah. of a sudden he's like really flexing his muscles. And then after a while, he's like, okay, well, I'm, I'm not just trying to make my gains now. I want to refine my physique. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a weird analogy to use, yeah. but I feel like after that, he's he's proven that he can lift that weight. And now he's like, okay, now I'm going to really, really make this into a science in like my own version of what I want to look like or who I want to be or what I want to make movies like. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what's going to be fascinating over this journey. Oh, yeah. And I was going to going to ask you, Eric, I don't know if we should get into a position where we're ranking movies at the end of the runs that we do for directors, but it could be kind of fun to at least 
give our personal rankings. I don't think we should argue which one's the best one because it's subjective and obviously, but I'm kind of curious as we watch the run to see where our opinions change because we could get to There Will Be Blood and be like, you know what it is? I kind of like this movie more than I thought I did. As far as the four that we pick or just their their entire filmography? The four that we pick. Oh, I got I think you. the fairest way yeah. to do it is, yeah. is to really like kind of use that opportunity to reevaluate what we think about these movies. And I think, especially for me and you, rewatching Magnolia, I don't think I've seen Magnolia since theaters. I really don't <laughs> think I have. And I saw it two or three times in theaters. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's interesting. Yeah, it's it's been a while since I've seen it. No, I mean, I've, I've only seen Inherent Vice once. I was going to say, is it the least ones that I've seen? But I've, I've only seen Inherent Vice once. That's his movie I've seen the least too. Okay, so dear listener, we've given you the first episode, which is Heart 8. The movies, we've told you the movies we're going to do next. So we're going to do Boogie Nights, we're going to do Magnolia, and then we are going to do There Will Be Blood. So by the time this episode comes out, feel free to start watching those movies in advance and kind of like watch them along with us if you want. Um, it gives you a chance to watch them before our next episode posts. So you know what we're going to do. And we're inflexible in the order that these movies are going to, these episodes are going to come out. Like we're committed to this and we've, we've basically committed to a year's worth of podcasts. Yeah, we have uh, six directors each. It's about four weeks each. So four episodes each. Give or take, if any craziness happens within the, within the years, you know, I mean, there might be like um, a random other episode in, in there somewhere. I'm sure there will be, you know, I mean, we're going to have to talk about some stuff, you know, uh, coming up. I mean, I'm, I'm probably going to want to talk about Zone of Interest when it comes out. There'll be movies that we can't resist doing episodes on. I exactly. Know that yeah. Definite. Yeah. I think we, I think we decided that it's going to be called uh, Movies Last Night, the director series. So just look for that. Yeah, for sure. So when these episodes are posted, they're going to be under the sub bracket, the director series, in which case you will know which episode it's going to be. And you know, which, if it's going to be, are we talking about something contemporary, something current? So you can, you can follow along with us and you'll be able to find them in the feed and they'll be noted so you can jump in where you want to jump in if you want to do it that way. It'd be awesome if you do watch the movies along with us. We're not going to announce all of the directors right now. And I think what we'll do is at the end of every run, we'll announce the next director. Yeah. Uh, so you have a little bit of a heads up and we'll tell you the four movies. So when we get through this run of four movies with Paul Thomas Anderson, on the last episode, we're going to announce the next director and which four movies we're going to cover. So that gives you time to prep and it also gives you time, but also it gives you something to look forward to because you don't know where we're going to go next. And having seen Eric and I's list, <laughs> it's a pretty varied bunch. Really, it is. Yeah. We yeah. have a pretty eclectic mix there. And there's a lot of content on there that I haven't seen um, that Same. Eric's picked. Yeah. And, uh, and, and likewise, I picked some movies Eric hasn't seen. I picked some movies that I haven't seen. I know Eric's picked some movies that he hasn't seen perhaps too. So it's going to be a fun ride and it's going to be a good way to revisit some old classics, to learn something about maybe find your next favorite movie or just to, I don't know, just mix it up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Well, with that being said, that wraps up the first episode of the director's series with Hard Eight. So I'd like to thank everybody for listening and for following along. This is the first of many, in which case do expect some changes as we go through in terms of format. We're kind of working out the format as we go. This is a work in progress and we're going to kind of refine it down to a polished diamond, yeah. which we basically never did with Movies Last Night. <laughs> <laughs> we promised to do, but Movies Last Night is chaos. Hopefully this will be a little more organized. We'll probably get it figured out by the uh, 11th director, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'll lose interest and we'll do something else. No, we yeah, won't. We'll stick. Yeah, yeah. we'll stick to it. Okay. Well, thank you, Eric, as always. Yeah. Wonderful. 
to hang out with you, talk movies with you, just like the good old days. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah.